thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And my friends, I want to follow up on last week's podcast where we spoke about the legislation in front of the General Assembly dealing with whether there are any created realities regarding what it means to be human, what it means to be a woman or a man, what it means to be a mother or a father, what is true about marital relationships. You'll recall that we had two bills uh, in front of the General Assembly, one that, that simply asserted that there are realities regarding the marital relationship and the father-child relationship and that the legislature was going on record to say to the United States Supreme Court you were wrong to say that a husband had no say in his wife's decision to abort their child. The married man had no right to have a say. And we're going to say yes he does because we're going to recognize that reality and not strip him as civil government of the rights and privileges that he has by virtue of that relationship that ultimately come from God. And then you'll recall there was another bill where legislators were wanting to force, uh, have the government force private insurance companies to cover infertility treatments even outside the context of marriage and in a, in a way that would actually even facilitate the creation of children between same-sex couples. And we. We talked there about Roe versus Wade, if you'll remember, and the Supreme Court's decisions in Eisenstein versus Baird that actually preceded Roe versus Wade, where the court began to re- deconstruct, actually not reconstruct, but deconstruct uh, what marriage was in the Eisenstein case in 1972, then created the autonomous individual in Roe versus Wade who exists only to seek her own sense of fulfillment and pleasure and destiny and happiness and uh, those kinds of things, which ultimately we saw worked into the law with the Supreme Court's marriage decision in 2015. Whatever gives two people, or at least for now two people, a sense of dignity and fulfillment and, and satisfaction as human beings, well, they have to be able to pursue it, and so the state can't define marriage in terms of male and female. If you'll remember, I think I've quoted it before, the very first sentence of the Obergefell decision was that the Constitution gives liberty to everybody within the lawful realm to to pursue their own identity. And, and I've pointed out before that that word lawful realm means the realm the Supreme Court decides you can have. There is no true lawful realm. There is no realm that is subject to God, where God gives the meaning, where God creates the reality. And I, and I thought a lot about that, going back to the podcast with Dr. Sandlin on February 19th, where he talked about Genesis 1 and 2 Christians versus Genesis 3 Christians and the importance of creation. And I want to take a look at that a little bit today. Because, you know, to be honest, other than a cursory sort of look that 
that God created the world. Okay, good. And God created man and woman in his image. Okay, good. Now let's get to the real point of the story, which is Genesis 3, and the rest of this is about salvation. But actually, no. The rest of the Bible is actually an expanded footnote and explication of Genesis 1 and 2. And what God's going to do because of Genesis 3 to restore the purposes that he had for his creation. So I, I want to begin with some thoughts from a book. Uh, I've referenced it before by, by Herman Bavink, who was a theologian in the um, late 1800s and 1900s in the Netherlands. He wrote a, a series of books, and I have purchased uh, what's called Volume 2, God and Creation. It's, uh, if anybody wants to buy it, it's John Bolt, B-O-L-T was the editor, John Vriend, I don't know how you pronounce it, it's probably Dutch as he was, V-R-I-E-N-D was uh, the translator. But he says several things here that are very important, and, and you know, they, I, I just never heard them as I grew up. They just weren't part of the doctrine of the church that I was taught, because I was raised, really, in a Genesis 3-only kind of gospel. So here's the thing, a couple of things that he says that just drive home the point that that Dr. Sandlin was making, that, that I was trying to make last week about how we can see it as the function of the government to mandate your ability to go create children, and how I'd said that 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 concept really flows from a sanctified humanism in which man and woman is the center of the universe, and it's not truly a God-centered view of the world. And let me just pause there and encourage you, if you've not done so, go to our website, factennessee.org, go to the Events tab, and register today for Restoring the Vision. It is not just a biblical worldview conference. It is a God-centered worldview conference to help us think and see the world from a God-centered perspective. And we don't even realize how steeped we are in a sanctified humanism where it's really all about me and even the gospel is all about me. Please register for this seminar. I assure you, you will probably hear things and see it applied to the real world in a way that you've never heard it before. I encourage you to come. I encourage you to come. So anyway, here's what Herman Bovic said in chapter 8 dealing with creation. I'm just going to give you some quotes. Creation is the initial act and foundation of all divine revelation, and therefore the foundation of all religious and ethical life as well. Notice that he's saying here there's not some religious life and then there's some separate ethical life. It's the foundation for all of life, religious and ethical. Next quote, true religion. Now, now that's an interesting statement because now he's, he's calling some, some religions, perhaps even some Christianities, not true. Of course, if the Christianity is not true, it's not really Christianity, but it's the pseudo-Christianity that's so prevalent in the churches today. And here's what he says, true religion distinguishes itself from all other religions by the fact that it construes the relation 
between God and the world, including man, as that between the Creator and His creatures. Now, you'd probably say, well, I think every church in the world would, would say that. And, and going back to the earliest creeds of the church, other than perhaps the one Jesus is Lord, they all begin with and talk about God as the Creator. Okay, even the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, all of these creeds talk about God as the, as the Creator. But what happens is we don't have a firm doctrine of God by which we can then understand the nature of that relation and the purpose of that relation. That's why I had Dr. Grant on, on, on March 26th. That's why he'll be at Restoring the Vision to say, you know, we can get a lot of things wrong in life. But if we get our view of God, our doctrine of God wrong, we will get everything else wrong, including creation, and therefore including our relation to creation and to God. If you don't start with God, you get everything wrong. Or you might get a few things right, but ultimately they'll be skewed. They'll be off-centered. The, uh, you, you, you'll be just one degree off on your trip from Nashville to New York City, and you'll wind up in Niagara Falls or someplace. You see what I'm saying? Now, Bobbitt makes this statement. No right relation to God is conceivable apart from this basis, creation. It positions us in the proper relation to God. Okay, then he goes on and makes this statement. Creation is the fundamental dogma. Of course, today we don't like dogma at all, other than the dogma God loves everybody, and it's all going to wash out in the end. Oh, isn't it happy, clappy, wonderful, God loves everybody. But he's saying, no, creation is the fundamental dogma. Throughout Scripture, it is in the foreground and is the foundation stone on which the old and new covenants rest. You see, there really is no such thing as a Genesis 3-only Christian. That's an emasculated, watered-down, human-focused gospel which is not really the gospel. When everything centers around, how do I solve my problem, guess who the focus is on? You, not God. Now, we need, to, we need to think this through a little bit more and understand how this works itself out. Let's begin to do that now in the minutes that remain. One of the things, again, Bobbick says, is the idea of an existence apart from an independent of God occurs nowhere in Scripture. God is the sole, unique, and absolute cause of all that exists. Now that's, that's an easy statement to ascribe to, but you see when, when life gets hard, we, we don't like to think that my existence is actually somehow tied into God because it's not good right now, and that would mean God is not good. So I'm going to turn to the government to solve my problems. He's not opened my womb, and that's expensive to do to go get fertility treatments my own, so I'm going to go to the government to get them to mandate that for my happiness, as if my happiness can be found independent of God. Now, 
the same is going to be true of the same-sex couple. You know, they say for me to have dignity, fulfillment, to not be alone at night, all of those things that, that heterosexual couples get when they marry, I want all those things too. But, oh, uh, gosh, I, I can't conceive children. So for me to have fulfillment now as this married couple, well, I need to be able to have children, so I'm going to run to the government and have them mandate insurance company to help me pay for this. Now, now the first thing you're going to hear is, is somebody's going to say, yeah, David, but that's what Christians believe, and not everybody believes that. And I'm not requiring everybody to believe that, but what I am saying is, do Christians believe that? And when they go to be legislators and policy makers, do they act like they believe that so that people see and are pointed to the realities of the glory of God, or, or do we solve their problems so they don't ever have to look at whether they are in right relationship to God and understand that their very existence, their very next breath is dependent upon something outside of themselves, which is true of everything else, you see? I'm entitled to have my beliefs when I go into the legislative chamber, just as the other person's entitled to have theirs. But you see what happens is, we take our God of creation and we shove him in a closet. We shove him in our heart. And, and we say, okay, we will live as if there is no God because you don't think there is one. Well, why do we do that? Why do we do that? If we really know this God, and we've seen the glory of God, and we know that our destiny and our purpose and our fulfillment and our satisfaction and our joy and contentment as human beings is found in God, then, then what are we doing? What are we, what are we thinking? Now, here's where I want to next go with this. Uh, Bobbink makes this statement, what moved God to call this world into existence. In other words, Bavik says, what goal did he have in mind for the creation? Well, here's what many Christians would say, that the world was created as a result of God's goodness and love. Because of God's goodness and love, he created. And scripture does often speak of the fact that God is good. It does say that over and over and over. He is good. And it does say that his goodness is manifested in all of his works. Now, sometimes we have a hard time believing that, don't we? Well, this, this isn't good. If God's good, I'd have a baby. If God's good, I'd have a different job. If God's good, I'd have gotten a different wife. If God was good, I'd have a different child. If God was good, I'd have a different in-law. If God was good, if God was good, if God was good, you see? And that goes back to what we said last, last time. Satan's always tempting us to, to think that God is not good, and the cross is the evidence that, in fact, in the midst of all the craziness and the apparent evil, God is good and is love. But that's not the reason he created, because God did not need to create in order to be good or to prove he was good. Why? Because within the Trinity, there was goodness, there was love. There was nothing God needed from his creation. That's why he's not served with human hands, as it says in Acts chapter 17. My failure to do something or my doing of something makes no change in the being of God. 
okay? So we have to explain then, why did he create? And here's what Bavink goes on to say, is that we tend to place man in the foreground of creation. And that's why we like to start with Genesis 3. You see, I've got problems, and I need a solution to my problem, and I'm going to go to Genesis 3 and see that God proposed a solution to my problem. We don't start in Genesis 1-1. And, and what Bobnick goes on to say is, of course, God's goodness becomes manifest in Scripture, and the Scripture repeatedly asserts it, but it's still not correct to say that God's goodness requires the creation, or otherwise God would somehow be selfish, he says. Remember, God is the all-good being, perfect love, total blessedness within himself, and therefore does not need the world to bring his goodness or love to maturity. It already is at maturity within the Godhead itself. So he doesn't need that any more than he needs to achieve self-consciousness or personality like pantheists might say. No, no, no. It's in the nature of the very case, therefore, that God does not exist for the sake of man and that man exists for the sake of God. So therefore, we have to say that God alone can be the reason and the goal of creation. He goes on to say it this way, Inasmuch as he, mankind, or man, has his origin in God, he can also have his destiny only in God. And finally, the theory that creation is grounded in God's goodness and has for its final end the salvation of man there we go. See the Genesis 3 idea. This is the goal of everything, is the salvation of man. He says this is at variance with reality. The universe is not exhausted by its service to humanity and must therefore have some goal other than the utility to man. See what he's really saying here is if the salvation of man is all that this is about, then, then why are we still here? Why aren't we saved and, and we go to heaven? What are we supposed to do while we're here? Just bide our time? Do the best we can? See, this gets to the eschatology question. Your protology informs your eschatology. We are here as, as descendants of the second Adam to do what the first Adam failed to do that the second Adam did, and we're to continue the work of filling and forming the, wor the world and now, in its sinful, fallen state, reconciling the things that are skewed and off-center and out of alignment back into alignment. We now have a reason and a purpose for existence other than being saved. Now what do I do? You see, when you take Genesis 1 and 2 out, you, you remove any destiny or any purpose for man's existence. He's just lost and needs to be saved. No, 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 no. That, that's why you can't divorce Genesis 3 from Genesis 1 and 2. So, so Bobbitt goes on. The pedestrian utilitarianism and the self-centered teleology, that means the end purposes, that the end of everything is me. Me, 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 me. That's what's going on with these bills. I need to be able to abort my baby for me to be fulfilled so I don't get captured and bound up and, and tied into this concept of being a wife or a mother. Um, that's the whole idea behind no-fault divorce laws. 
It's the whole idea for why we have to have same-sex marriage licenses. It's the whole idea behind why we have to mandate that, that insurance companies provide fertility treatments. It's a self-centered teleology, he says, of the 18th century. And he says, it's really been sufficiently refuted. Well, I guess not, because we're still plodding along in the same way here in the 21st. And then he says this, the suffering and pain that is the daily lot of humanity cannot be explained in terms only of God's goodness. I mean, that's what I'm saying. God can't be good if I'm not having this baby. God can't be good if I, if I don't have this job or this promotion or this relationship or this recognition or this legislative seat. So, so no, we, 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 we can't explain life in terms of um, if just the goodness of God in light of all the pain and suffering. And then he goes on, he says, the final outcome of the world history which speaks to us not only of the salvation of the elect, but also of an eternal triumph over the ungodly. That reveals attributes of God entirely different from his goodness and love. You see, we, we've emasculated God by focusing on ourselves. And then he says this, Scripture accordingly takes another position and points to a higher goal. It says that all of nature is a revelation of God's attributes and a proclaimer of his praise. God created man after his image and for his glory. He glorified himself in the Pharaoh of the Exodus and in the man born blind, John 9, 3, and made the wicked for the day of trouble, Proverbs 16, 4 and Romans 9, 22. Christ came to glorify God, John 17, 4, and he bestows all the benefits of grace for his name's sake, redemption, forgiveness, sanctification, and so forth. God gives his glory to no other, Isaiah 42, 8. The final goal is that all kingdoms will be subjected to him and every creature will yield to him. Even on earth already he is given glory by all his people and someday God alone will be great and receive glory from all his creatures. He is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. Of Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. Romans 11:36. And on this basis, Christian theology almost unanimously teaches that the glory of God is the final goal of all of God's works. Now I'm going to close today with a little bit of a confession. Uh, last week, I just told the Lord, I said, you know, I have to confess that there are times I do not like the idea that I exist solely for your pleasure and your glory. I want something about it to be about me. I, 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 I want it to be about me. And, and, um, and see, that's, the, that's the, the, the root evil in our heart. It's the root evil at the... In, in Genesis 3, I really want it to be about me. And the fact that we don't want it to be all about us reveals how far short we have fallen from the glory of God. So, I actually read this morning in the Valley of Vision that I often quote from this, and I, I close with these words from it. Oh Lord, help me never to expect any happiness from the world but only in thee. Let me not think I shall be more happy by living to myself 
for I can only be happy if I'm employed for thee, and if I desire to live in this world only to do and suffer what thou dost allot me. Teach me that if I do not live a life that satisfies you, I will not live a life that will satisfy me. Wow, that's a hard thing to get through my head. But see, here's the truth. Whatever it is we trust in, from that, we're going to expect happiness. And when we're looking only at our own circumstances and not at our circumstances in relation to this God who gave his only son for us on the cross, then we're putting our happiness in something other than God. And I believe that when we can get to that point that we realize, I will never be satisfied by myself until I'm satisfied with you, we will not be like Paul and Silas, able to thank God and praise God even in prison. Thank you for joining me today, and I'll look forward to seeing you next week on God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.